If there is one thing out there that Bill Gates hates even more than the fact that you didn't get your COVID-19 vaccine, it is population growth. <laughs> it's the fact that there are more people on this planet than there ever have been, and they just seem to be increasing and increasing and increasing. There might be billions more people on this planet in the next couple decades. We'll see. But that is one of the biggest concerns of people like Bill Gates. I don't know what exactly to call his type of people. I don't know, TED Talk people. You know what I mean. Rich people who purport to rule the universe by virtue of being famous, right? Those kind of people. Ideas people. Um, there is There are very few issues more important to them than the idea of overpopulation, which, mind you, is basically, I mean, you're never going to hear that as an issue from anyone else. And maybe you just live in a crowded city or something like that. But today, I want to talk about overpopulation. Where does the concern come from? Is it a legitimate concern? Is it something that we need to be worried about? Is it, uh, uh, or is it just a, a fake meme? Is it just another justification for the elites to do what they want to us? Actually, I, I mentioned this because it's actually a portion. It's uh, the idea of population control is very important in conspiracy theory circles, right? A couple of years ago, I did a little video. I was traveling around the country, and I stopped in Elberton, Georgia. Now, you might know that that is where the Georgia Guidestones are. I don't know if people know what those are, but they it's a mysterious monument that was put in there, I, I want to say around the 90s. I'm not quite sure. Some people call it America's Stonehenge, which I, which I think is a very stupid thing to call it. But it is notable because no one really knows who built it. Um, and you have all these stones with all of these uh, different languages written on them. And in each of the language, they have basically directions for how to run society. And the first one is that the population of the planet should not exceed 500 million. That's half a billion. That's not that much. That's a lot less than what we have now. So uh, because the Georgia Guidestones are a big part of conspiracy theories and population growth is frankly, I mean, it's really a hot topic the past couple of years because it's really a forced meme. People like Bill Gates, who has been in the the public spotlight for a while, have been forcing it for a long time. So I want to talk about where the idea of overpopulation, where it comes from, and uh, I guess modern discourses on it, and whether or not it should be a concern, whether or not it's an issue. Uh, we're going to be talking about a couple different books today, um, of books and essays. The first essay should be obvious to anyone who is talking about population growth, and that is Robert Malthus, or Tobit, Thomas Robert Malthus, excuse me. I always want to call him Robert. It just rolls off the tongue more, but Thomas Malthus. Um, he was a writer back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and he wrote an essay on the principle of population. And when people talk about Malthusianism, they talk about the idea of uh, population being bad or overpopulation is going to cause significant problems. We'll get into that. But I'm also going to talk about other books. In the 20th century, there was a a kind of rebirth of Malthusianism, although not necessarily connected with Malthus per se. Uh, but there's a book written by a man named Paul Ehrlich called The Population Bomb. It's a very short book. Not a very, I don't know, it's not a very deep book, but it was a highly influential book. And that, probably more than anything, has been influential on the modern discourse on population, right? The modern kind of hysteria, like the Bill Gates kind of people, they are very much tapped into this kind of 1960s view of overpopulation as being a big issue, which would later give rise to the, the global warming stuff and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, and additionally, I'll talk as a response to at least the population bomb. I'm also going to talk about another book by Julian Simon called The Resourceful Earth, which he actually wrote with Herman Kahn, but everyone remembers Julian Simon. We'll talk about all of these people. You don't have to remember the names right now. <laughs> but either way, so what is, what's the deal with population? Why, why should anyone care about it? Well, if you have been attached to the internet or attached to first world media in any way, you have probably at some point in your life seen a population growth chart, right? A historical chart of the, the population of the earth. And it is, uh, it's vexing. It is uh, surprising. It's startling when you first see it, right? Because here's how it goes. You can look it up if you want, but I will tell you, I will remind you because I'm sure you've seen it. For all of human history, the human population was very, very low. Okay, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand, maybe a couple thousand years ago, or maybe not even that far, but a couple hundred years ago, we got to, um, you know, a couple million, things like that. I, I want to say we first hit a billion people, maybe around 1850, something like that. But since then, we've had such massive growth that we're, it's like we're putting on billions every decade or so. Right. So when I was a kid, I remember it being a big deal. Oh, my goodness. The world population, it just hit six billion. And now I want to say we're about to hit eight billion. It hasn't really been that long. Um, I, I, I remember hearing people quote some statistic. I forget exactly what it was, but something like is some I'm just going to make it up on my head. But you get the emotional point of it. Something like 95 percent of all the humans that have ever existed exist right now. Something like that. You can look it up if you're actually interested. Um, but, uh, you know, history, humans have not been around in the populations that we think they have been. I mean, at least con according to consensus history, uh, we have had this massive increase in population. And before that, there was a very negligible amount of people on this planet. So when you look at a population growth uh, chart, you see basically nothing for thousands of years. And then, you know, things kind of start to go up. But around the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, all of a sudden, the population shoots up to some obscene amount, drastically dwarfing everything else, all of human history, right? So that is scary looking when you first look at it, right? Obviously. And it goes without saying that the Earth is finite, right? I mean, we can't have trillions of people on this planet, right? I mean, we're going to be shoulder to shoulder. That's going to be really bad. Uh, we're, we're clearly not going to have enough resources. or that, I mean, we can't just ca keep having children until we have more humans than atoms in the universe like there are some limits the issue is where is the limit of population growth is it something we have to be worried about let's talk about our first writing and that is malthus's that is thomas robert malthus's essay on the principles of population okay and this is this is right before 1800 this is like 1798 i think now as a background before we even give it into before we even get into what he says okay you have to understand the environment in which he's writing. This is in the aftermath, or not even the aftermath. This is while the French Revolution is unfolding. Okay, so I assume everyone knows this, but, uh, you know, the French Revolution was a brief period where France went absolutely insane. They killed their king. They killed lots of other people. 
they uh, made they persecuted Catholicism and replaced it with a cult of reason. They renamed all their mo- months based on rational principles. They tried to metricize time. They actually metricized everything. They wanted to overthrow all of society, and it actually works. And it was uh, it actually they succeeded in overthrowing everything. And basically, a, a cadre of redditors and coomers took over the country. Uh, and that was the reign of terror where they not just executed all of their political enemies, but eventually they started executing themselves because, you know, I don't know. The, it, it was a, ma- a period of mass hysteria. So I want to say just a couple years before um, Malthus put out his essay, um, Robespierre, who was kind of the ringleader of a lot of the revolutionaries, he had actually gotten executed by the, the other revolutionaries of counter-revolutionary, you know, different things, right? So it was a time of, an, of extreme chaos. And of course, all in France, there were a lot of sympathizers with the revolution and thought, oh, we are creating this new age of reason. Again, they had this, uh, they, uh, eradic- they tried to eradicate Catholicism and replace it with a cult of reason. And then when that fell out of favor, the Robespierre created the cult of the supreme being, which was this kind of weird deist cult. Either way, things were nutty, okay? But there were some people in England and other countries who were sympathetic to the French Revolution and thought it was something very exciting, right? And this was, I remember the French Revolution is also, uh, it's, it's really where the concept, uh, or at least when the concept becomes useful, of distinguishing the political left and right. Okay, the, uh, the terms left and right actually come from the French assembly at this period where the right were more conservative, they were more sympathetic to the king, or they were more anti-revolutionary, where the left was, you know, let's, let's chop off everyone's heads, and if, you know, we haven't chopped, if, if things are still bad, we just have to chop off a couple more, right? Um, so this was a very fun period uh, for lots of people. It was a very exciting period intellectually, right? Um, and one of the guy, one of the guys in England who was very sympathetic to the French Revolution was um, William Godwin. Okay, and William Godwin uh, was a kind of utopian, and of course, many of the the French revolutionaries were in essence utopian. Their vision was: we just have to get rid of all the things in society that I don't like. I don't like the aristocracy. I don't like the reli- the religion. I don't like all these other things. I don't like marriage. Let's just get rid of those things and we are going to live in a utopia because that is the natural state of man, et cetera, et cetera. Malthus uh, really thought all of this was very cringe and delusory. Uh, actually, in his, I wrote this down, in the essay on population, there's, he actually kind of has a good mockery of this utopianism. I'm going to read this paragraph. He says, A writer may tell me that he thinks man will ultimately become an ostrich. I can't properly contradict him, but before he can expect to bring any reasonable person over to his opinion, he ought to show that the necks of mankind have been gradually elongating, that the lips have grown harder and more prominent, that the legs and feet are daily altering their shape, and that hair is beginning to change into stubs and feathers. Until the probability of such so wonderful of a conversion can be shown, it is surely lost time and lost eloquence to expatiate on the happiness of man in such a state, to describe his powers, both of running and flying, to paint him in a, a condition where all narrow luxuries would be contended, where he would be employed only in collecting the necessaries of life, and where, consequently, each man's share of labor would be light and his portion of leisure ample. So Malthus is lampooning utopians because they have no, I mean, they, they are 
talking about this utopia that will come, but they don't in any way show that it's inevitable or that that it can happen. Uh, Everyone at the time period could just look and see the bloodshed of the French Revolution and see the disasters that were happening. Um, And so Malthus was very skeptical of these type of people. Now, um, Malthus, again, was critiquing this particular work of William Godwin. Uh, And William Godwin is, um, I guess, a guy who's somewhat interesting. Uh, He's only uh, remembered for two things, okay? Thing number one is the fact that Malthus wrote this much more famous essay in response to him. (laughs) And number two is he actually gave birth to Mary Shelley, who would write Frankenstein. So, you know, he's he's a guy remembered for being related to other famous people, (laughs) which, you know, I don't want to say that's a bad thing to be remembered for, but, you know, he he was a kind of sexual libertine and revolutionary in, in some ways, um, you know, he actually kind of had, um, I don't know, the, I, I want to say E. Michael Jones and Libido Dominandi actually goes through his uh, biography and his family's biography and how, how interesting it is related to the French Revolution and their kind of revolutionary mores and how that served to be kind of a problem for him having children and being loyal to his wife who actually died in childbirth giving birth to uh, Mary uh, but then the he, as he as Godwin grew older he actually became a lot more conservative and was very worried that the same thing would happen to Shelley that she'd be sort of taken advantage of by a man uh, things like that. Either way, that's just biographical stuff. You can read about that stuff if you want. Uh, we're not here to talk about Godwin. In fact, we're not even here to talk about Malthus. We're here to talk about what he, what his views were. Um, so, anyway, Godwin had said something. He had brushed aside the issue of population growth, and Malthus wants to address this in a very simple fashion. Here's what Malthus says. Two principles, two very undeniable principles on, uh, on first glance. Um, and Principle number one is that you can increase the amount of food that a society produces, but food increases arithmetically, okay? Whereas population, you can also increase the population, but population increases geometrically. That is, food production is additive, whereas people production, (laughs) I mean childbirth, is multiplicative, okay? Now, if you take those two things together, you get a very simple result, okay? And here, uh, I want you to imagine this in the environment where it was first imagined, right? We have a a finite amount of land, and if we want to double our land, uh, let's see, our land usage, right, um, we we have to use twice as much land, right? I mean, it's a very simple thing, and, you know, to produce twice as much food, we need twice as much land, except, and of course, that is a limited quality, uh, quant- or, yeah, uh, limited uh, commodity, right? Uh, whereas population is something that population growth is a function of how much population already exists, right? So um, it is going to be something that as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the increase will increase more and more, right? It's an exponential function in, in some degrees, okay? Uh, so that's a big issue. So what Malthus says is, all right, we might live in a time where maybe we even have increasing standards of living, Okay. But what will inevitably happen is that we will try to farm more and more and more land, and that is limited, and we, it is not actually multiplicative. We are just adding on more land, whereas population growth is multiplicative. It is not additive, right? So you can, um, you know, have a, a population will continue to increase, and it will increase faster and faster and faster. So the inevitable result is what? The inevitable result is that any society will get to a point where you have just enough people 
so that you're maintaining this set carrying capacity of you know the world you if, if, if you had any more people they would just be starving and of course everyone who exists at this in this world is always on the verge of starvation we're only able to produce just enough food to maintain things right now it's it's kind of remnant Malthus's view is honestly kind of a cyclical view it, it's sort of like the memes you see on the internet right uh, where people say, oh, well, you know, uh, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, something like that, right? Malthus has kind of a similar idea where if you have a, a period of plenty, that is because you have a lot of food production, but you don't have quite as much population. So population will increase to match that food production, which can't increase, you know, faster than it uh, at some point. And then you'll be living at subsistence, and then you might have starvation and disease and other things that wipe out the population, lots of bad times. And it's only after those bad times you can have, oh, well, you know, we can still produce all this food, even though all these people have died off, right? And so we actually have a higher standard of living then until the population gets big, et cetera, et cetera, right? So Malthus kind of had this cyclical view of history, right, where... Uh, Societies are always going to be in this Malthusian trap. They're, they're never going to be able to really become massive and have high standards of living. It's just not, um, you know, there are just natural principles that are keeping that from happening. I do want to make just a random aside. This will just take a minute. Um, so economics, right? Now, now, Malthus, I should say, is known for this population growth essay, but this was actually a very minor part of his career. He was a he was a very seasoned economist, had a lot of debates with David Ricardo. I mean, all you libertarians probably know this, blah, 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 says law, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but Malthus is, um, Malthus was kind of interesting for other reasons as well. Um, but I will say one note in the population growth essay is the f and I don't think uh, Malthus says this explicitly, but there very much was the assumption, right, that when you're, you, let's say we, we find an undiscovered continent, right, and we want to start farming there. Obviously, the first place we're going to farm is not on a mountain or in a desert. We're going to find the nice, most fertile farmland, and we're going to farm there. And as population gets bigger, or as we need to um, scale things up, we're going to go to less good farming locations. We're going to we're going to have suboptimal. You know, it's not just that we're adding plots to our farming. We're actually getting worse and worse plots. We're having worse, you know, per capita per per labor output. There's kind of like a diminishing diminishing returns uh, to scale in some ways in land production. And this was a very common idea at this period as well. Uh, so it's not even ju just the oh, well, land use is additive. It's actually you're adding ever-decreasing amounts because we're, we're moving, if we need to produce more food, we're usually needing to do that at less in less efficient areas, right? Now, the reason this is interesting for economists is because this idea of diminishing returns to scale is the reason that our supply curves in economic theory go upward, okay? That is the reason that they do that. Um, and the funny thing about that is is that if you look at it, you know, most things in the world, frankly, do not have diminishing returns to scale. They have, you know, increasing returns. And so in real life, for most goods, you know, really the supply curve should be bending downwards, right? They should be something similar to the demand curve, right? That, that's actually how things should be. Um, but that is one of those assumptions of neoclassical economics that was really never, I don't know, it was really never fixed. I mean, the only modern writer I know of that 
um, has written about this that I know of. I mean, there are probably a lot of others. I mean, I, I don't read that much economic stuff. It's been like 10 years since I've read economic stuff because I find it boring at this point. But Steve Keen, in his book, Debunking Economics. Now, Steve Keen is one of these post-Keynesian guys. I mean, I don't think he's like MMT or anything, but he, he's post-Keynesian in that particular school. Um, I, I think he has a chapter on this. Uh, talking about how the fact that supply curves are like totally screwed up. I, I remember noting this when I was an undergrad, like when I was uh, about to finish my degree in economics. Um, just for my own logical exercises, I started writing uh, a kind of uh, my personal textbook from first principles on economics, just to kind of rehearse everything in my head. And I got to the supply curve and I tried to reason it through. And I was like, wait, this makes no sense. It's exactly backwards. But the reason supply curves go upward is because they are based on this very specific logic to um, land use. But anyway, that that's just a random aside. Now, as it comes to Malthus, Malthus has this debate with uh, Godwin. And, uh, you know, Malthus was very reasoned. He probably had better arguments than Godwin. But Malthus and his population growth essay have kind of gone down in history's hall of shame as one of the worst predictions ever. I mean, this is like, uh, because, of course, Malthus is right. I mean, he's writing like around 1800, saying that if we have massive population increases, we're going to have massive decreases in the standard of living, in essence, right? And the, the irony of it is that if Malthus had written this at any other time in history, if he had written this in 2000 BC, or 50 BC, or, you know, 1000 AD, it would have been everyone looked, oh yeah, this is great, and this is fantastic. And I mean, of course, people still acknowledge his work as being good and, and interesting, and, and it's been very influential. But the thing is, he was writing right before the Industrial Revolution, and a lot of technological changes that complicated his model, right? Because his model just has land use in assuming that you cannot increase the productivity of that land, and population growth. And of course, the extra variable that is not included in that is technological change. The fact that you can squeeze a whole lot more out of an acre of land than you could several centuries ago, right? So you can have economies of scale in farming, you can have tractors, you can have modern equipment, you can have, I mean, we have an entire world of different varieties that we can plant and do things like that. And, you know, it's easier that we even have factory farming of animals and things like this. There are a lot of ways, and that is, and a lot of this isn't necessarily even necessary, right? Food is, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of underestimate the importance of food in limiting population. Really, it's, it's mortality. That's really the more important thing. Um, but clearly what happened in this period is that the world population explodes. I, I think I mentioned before, I, I want to say it hit a billion people around 1850, so like 50 years after Malthus was writing this. And now it's just, I mean, it's eight times that, right? If it's eight billion now. So things have incredibly increased, right? Now Malthus, again, his reputation, I, I think in the field people respect Malthus uh, because he was a very good economist and thinker, but this is what he's most w well known for, this very bad prediction. This, um, um, uh, it, it, it's kind of funny because you can actually t turn the ostrich analogy around now because now what we're happening is, you know, now what's happening is that, you know, um, as population is increasing, we actually see decreasing uh, rates of starvation and infant mortality and, and public health things and environmental disasters and all this kind of stuff. It's actually decreasing. So really, it is kind of like we're growing, we're becoming ostriches, 
right? There is this, it almost smells like Whig history where our necks are elongating and stuff like that, right? So that, that's kind of the irony of it. Um, but uh, so Malthus, Malthus was very instrumental in this, and he did affect intellectual culture in, in many ways because of this critique, uh, because of his critique of utopianism and a lot of other, the, uh, other of the writers who were critical of the French Revolution. I mean, mind you, um, this was around, I don't know how much people use the term socialism in the late 1700s, uh, but this was around the period of the transformation from... Uh, so-called utopian socialism to so-called scientific socialism, right? Because when people like Marx started writing, okay, Marx's problems with the, I mean, Marx, of course, was a socialist and wanted the same thing as the utopian socialists, but he had seen people like Malthus write this this uh, super mean ostrich analogy and recognized, yeah, well, the issue with the utopians is they don't have some kind of rationalization or mechanism for how their utopia is supposed to get here. And Marxism, in part, is a is a, a kind of putting scientific verbiage and and stuff like that on top of, uh, or trying to make utopianism or at least revolution, to be more specific, seem inevitable given certain material conditions. So uh, Malthus and many others affected at least the inner intellectual environment in that way. You couldn't just be a utopian anymore uh, because you would just get mocked because it was very silly. But nonetheless, Malthus, uh, he, he does kind of have a, a tarnished reputation. Now, at this point, you might just say, ah, well, screw it. I guess the Malthusian stuff isn't important. Like, it's, it's fake. He misunderstood this. Like, oh, you omitted this. Therefore, you know, it doesn't matter at all. But I will say, although I'm not really a Malthusian, there are other variables at work here that you have to acknowledge. Firstly, you know, as a fact, there will be some kind of limiting factor on human population by definition, okay? We don't have infinite space. We don't have an infinite number of atoms in the universe. We cannot increase population forever and ever, amen. There has to be some limiting factor. But I think one thing that, I don't know, maybe people who aren't more economically minded tend to omit is that it's not like we're just going to wake up one day. Let's say we wake up on the day that we reach 8 billion people. And then, oh my goodness, this is too much. Now the world is just going to collapse. We don't have enough food at the store. We don't have this, that, or the other. That's not really how it works, right? Really what happens is you have this gradual movement to increased, uh, you know, increased scarcity of goods. We can't produce quite enough. You can't have as much surplus. Prices for things increase, prices for energy increase, and this is something that happens over a period of decades, okay, possibly centuries, all right? Now, if that were the case, uh, you know, we would probably be moving to a kind of carrying capacity. But as we see right now, technological productivity is still increasing a whole lot faster than everything else. And you can look at all the statistics that the UN and all these people, mind you, the UN is like big on population control, all these people... But they do statistics, and all, what nearly all of them show is that we are, in fact, moving to higher material standards of living, okay? Meaning we have more plastic toys, we have enough food, starvation is decreasing uh, in percentages, and actually, uh, I think, depending on how you calculate it, in absolute numbers as well. Even though we have many more people in the world, less people are, are suffering from starvation, other things like that, right? So... That, that's why I think a lot of people who want to critique industrialism do it in very superficial ways because they'll just say stuff like, whoa, man, we're going to be poor. There are going to be too many people, blah, blah, blah. We're going to be living in like uh, some kind of cyberpunk, uh, 
you know, we're gonna anchovy apartment kind of thing. And, you know, you can worry about that or whatever. But uh, in terms of standard of living, industrial society is still producing a whole lot more. If you want to critique industrialism, there are many grounds on which to critique it. Here are uh, two good ones, okay? Good one number one is, of course, while it gives us many material things, it is not psychologically calibrated to us, right? We are not psychologically calibrated to live in industrial society. We are not supposed to live... I mean, a part of human psychology is, in fact, not necessarily living in struggle, um, but having a life under our control that is not just a function of, you know, the mar the market wishes and things like that, or, or living in a place where we can control the things around us and we can accomplish things. Not necessarily living in a pod where we get everything free because, I don't know, it's just easy. We can produce enough, right? Um, now, one of the classic... Uh, you know, there's an old, you, you've probably seen this in meme, but there were memes, but um, there was an old uh, study in the 1960s that's a pretty good example of this. And this isn't on humans, but this is on rats or mice, I should say. Um, but there was a guy, what was his name? I think I wrote it down in my notes here. Let me pull it up and just, oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, John Calhoun. Okay, there's a guy named John Calhoun, and he did this very famous study where he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do we're going to take a bunch of mice. And I don't, I forget how much he started with something like 20 mice. And then he created this like mice utopia. So you just have, they get food all the time, whenever they want it. They get massive, they get massive apartments, basically places for them to build nests and hang out with other people. And I don't know, do whatever they want, have fun all day. Right. So he creates this utopia for mice. Okay. Now, famously what happened is now they have all the food they want, so they just, the population increased dramatically, right? So eventually you got to the point, I forget, again, I forget how many exactly uh, he started with, but let's say 20. He goes from 20 mice to, I know, around 2,000-something uh, mice. So you have all of these mice, and you still have plenty of room for them. You have plenty of uh, uh, food and all this kind of stuff. And so what ends up happening, though, is... Instead of dying of starvation or something, or instead of living happy lives, what the right what the mice start to do is they start kind of degenerating. They stop, uh, you know, they stop having sex and other mice. Uh, they have sex a lot less, and when they do, and when a female mouse gave birth to uh, children, pups, I think they call them, um, it would just not really care for them. It wouldn't build a nest for them. It would, you know. They basically just kind of milled around and did nothing. They didn't function as mice anymore. All of their needs were taken care of. They didn't have anything to do. And a lot of them just died. Uh, died of just kind of boredom, more or less, right? And that is, uh, I think, you know, that is honestly kind of, um, it's basically a rat metaverse. That's basically what the metaverse is. It's just like people living in this, uh, living in a pod and give, getting everything they want and doing the equivalent of running on a gerbil wheel to get achievement points or something like that. But that's basically what it is. Either way, the point is, you know, industrial society, of course, can indu industrial technology, of course, can give us many great things. But, uh, you know, life is not about just fulfilling needs. That is not, that's not like the goal of it. And humans will never function. They will never be able to function in an environment like that. And whenever they're given the ability of just perfect comfort, they will really not choose it. I mean... <laughs> This is kind of editorializing, but you know, there. I think a lot of a lot of first world problems are people just making problems for themselves for them to solve them because they don't have anything else to do. Okay, um, 
So that's ground number one on which you can criticize industrialism. But another one, which is a lot more practical, is the fact that industrial technology generates this world where we are far too reliant materially on people we don't really have any connection with. We're not talking about uh, an independent village or an independent community that can kind of provide for everything themselves. Um, instead, the division of labor and international trade and things like that make an environment where we are very much dependent on what's going on in some other country far, far away that we really don't have any control over. And that makes the entire world economy and society very fragile. Okay. Now, I remember back um, Adam Smith, um, who, of course, wrote The Wealth of Nations, but he wrote this other work called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Okay. And in that... Um, I'm not going to read it out for you or anything, but in it, he, he makes this little note that, oh, well, suppose, and of course, the book is about moral sentiments. So he's talking about, suppose that the entire nation of China, it just like disappeared in an earthquake. Everyone in China just died. <laughs> okay. And he said something like, well, you know, we would all be, we'd hear about it and we'd just be aghast. Oh my goodness. Oh, this is so terrible. Those poor Chinese people. Oh, the frailty of life. And, you know, maybe there would be some kind of commercial effects on trade or something like that. But really, everyone would just go along and they wouldn't really care. It's just like uh, something that doesn't really matter to them, right? And he's talking about something in terms of morality and how people relate to people that they don't know. But Really, the thing is, nowadays, if China disappeared in a giant earthquake, yeah, China would be screwed, but we might be even more screwed <laughs> because we now live, thanks to industrial technology, in a place where we are reliant on extremely separate parties to produce our goods and do things for us. And, you know, frankly, you know, if you're in America, what what exactly does America do? What does it produce? Like, uh... Apple DRM, uh, Netflix propaganda movies. I'm not quite sure what America produces. BS Jobs, I guess they have a lot of those. <laughs> uh, everyone, everyone does, of course. But um, there is a sense in which industrialism it creates a more fragile world, right? So you might say something like, oh, okay, well, we can have a higher population because of all this productive technology. Um, or, I mean, a, a common example that people use is GMOs. GMOs, like genetically organized, uh, organized, uh, genetically organized, um, GMO, genetically modified organisms. I don't know why I wanted to say O there. Uh, but crops like that uh, are a great example because what often happens is people will create this great GMO and then plant it in massive fields and it'll just be monocultural they won't have different varieties and if one of those varieties has some kind of issue with it maybe it falls victim to some pestilence that wasn't expected or maybe even um you know maybe there's some kind of weird unexpected or unknown health effect to using this gmo um if there's something like that it affects everyone drastically much more than if we had a million different kinds of you know seeds of wheat different kind of crops things like that so um Industrialism gives us a stability, but kind of a pseudo-stability. Uh, we can have a much uh, greater standard of living, but that actually comes with big risks. I mean, it's, I mean, that's how it is. I mean, industrial society also has given us nuclear weapons. We haven't blown up the world with it. But you always have to remember that the potentiality of that is there. And that would not exist, you know, if we didn't have this kind of technology, right? So that, I think, is, a, is very much a legitimate concern. So a couple more notes right before we go to a, a little break. Um, what exactly, let's be absolutely clear about what has caused the increase in population. Because all 
what we've been talking about is food. We've been talking about, oh my goodness, there's so much more food because of industrial technology and new farming techniques. Oh my goodness, it's great to have all this food. This is the thing that causes a higher population. It's, be, it's, it's very important to say that is not the case. It might enable, I mean, it, uh, people are not dying of starvation. It's a requirement, but it's not necessarily the, the most proximate cause, okay? And Malthus and other, other people in that time period, of course, were, given the, were working on the assumption, and of course, this, you could work on this now for most of the people in the world. Um, they were given the assumption that really humans are always having children about at the same rate, okay? The rate of people having children did not increase when the population increased. What actually increased is the mortality rates significantly went down. Meaning childhood mortality, which was one of the biggest things, was in essence eradicated. I mean, children basically do not die in childbirth and shortly after. It used to be that it was really the norm, and a lot of times most children would die in the first year of them having been born, or they'd be stillborn, or all this kind of stuff. And of course, sanitation and other things have decreased uh, mortality of people generally. A lot, many more people live longer, uh, partially because of that, and of course they have more children. Um, and so it's, it's important to remember that popu the increase in population was not caused by people just deciding, deciding, quote unquote, to have more children or something like that. Um, but it's caused by a decrease in mortality. Okay. Um, now, to us nowadays, one thing that has happened since 1900 is the normalization of birth control. Okay. Now, it is very important for you to realize as a modern person who is very alienated from this historically that birth control was extremely, I mean, birth control was basically a detestable thing for prostitutes, okay? Um, and then I, like it would be absolutely obscene for someone, even like an atheist or something to use something like birth control back in this period. It was very rare, uh, and people didn't really want, like, the idea, one random note, it is very funny when you uh, hear someone like Bill Gates uh, go to Africa, and then he's, like, kind of pissed off and kind of confused why Africans don't want to use birth control. Like, as if, like, birth control is, like, I don't know, people want to, to I, I, I am really of the persuasion that you have to convince, you have to brainwash someone from the time that they are born that birth control is, like, something that they want to do. I, I think it's totally a, a forced meme. Um, but it definitely was in the, uh, in the 1900s, particularly in Christian countries, um, or frankly, any religious country. But uh, back when the West was still Christian, uh, there was very much this uh, strong anti-birth control animus. And, and birth control was, again, thought of something for prostitutes and, and things, things like that. Um, so it was only around the 1900s that people like, um, Mar I was about to say Marla Sanger, Margaret Sanger, that's a Planned Parenthood woman, uh, and, and others kind of normalized this idea of using birth control. And it's, uh, frankly, it's gotten ridiculous now because I have, I'm not going to say any names, but I just know some boomer parents and in an ideal world, they would have their children taken away if they did this. But I have known of boomer parents who give their Teenage daughters birth control so they can suppress their periods because periods are inconvenient. I think that's freaking ridiculous. And just it's it's nuts that we now live in that world where I don't know. Um, either way, this is just crazy. Uh, and especially because all of these birth control chemicals, I mean, just as an aside, like you there are no longitudinal studies on these things. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole, I, I know that people, you know, will say this about other, 
um, other like silly new remedies that they're kind of worried about. I don't know, COVID-19 vaccine, something like that. But the same thing is true of birth control. Like I'm going to go ahead and bet I will put money down on the fact that in 20 years, most of the birth control technologies that people are like the chemical birth control, people are going to know that, oh, yeah, this like sterilizes people or harms them uh, or psychologically or something else in some severe way. Uh, but that's just a random aside. Either way, that, that's not what I'm talking about. So birth control, I will just say, is not it's not a variable for most of human history and most of human societies. It's a very new thing, and it's really still kind of specific to Europe, okay, or really uh, Europe and white countries and things like that. Now, um, other na- we'll get into the population bomb after the break um, where Paul Ehrlich actually – it gives a full-throated endorsement of basically sterilizing a bunch of men in India and things like that, which actually ended up happening. Um, but, um, you know, that in, in general, up until today, uh, like people in Africa, they don't give a crap about birth control and they're not going to give a crap about birth control. They don't want to do it. It's kind of a, it's kind of a forced meme. That, that's all I'm trying to say. And I think a lot of people will look at these issues and just say, why don't you just use birth control? Well, it's because they don't want to use it. They want to have children like that. That's the point, you know? But uh, either way, you know, if you look at statistics now, if you want to see how significant birth control has been in in changing global population, uh, again, if you look at like Europeans or let's just say white people, including the white people of America and Australia and things like that, um, white people make around 10% of the global population, okay? Whereas before the birth control era, back in, you know, the 1900s, things like that, or I mean 1900, not the 1900s, but around 1900 before birth control was popularized in these countries, uh, the white population was a lot closer to at least a third, probably a good bit more, okay, of the world's population. So there's been a very marked change uh, in the global population structure because all of these people are just, they're stopping having children, right? Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the pop, I, I'm not quite sure if it's still true, but there have been periods where people have said, basically the United States has no population growth outside of immigration or something like that. Um, I, I don't know if that's true right now. I think it's very close, uh, to being that if it isn't true right now, but you can look it up for yourself if you're actually really interesting, interested in it. Of course, it's not narrowly uh, racial or anything as well, because one interesting thing is, I might include a, a link in the description for this as well, but immigrants who come to a lot of Western countries will adopt similar birthing practices. So there were a couple studies on the fertility of Hispanic women who come to the United States, and if they stay here for a generation, basically they have fertility just as low um, as um, you know women who were here before, right, uh, as white or black women. So um, that is, uh, that's something to think about. So there is some sense in which we are kind of like the rat metaverse, okay? Now, I know people in their heads are saying, oh my goodness, I, I just don't, I, oh, I don't want to have kids for some reason. I don't know, it's, it's expensive or something. I mean, it, having children is like, financially speaking, the easiest as it's ever been uh, today because as we just talked about, we, ha- we live in an industrial society that has, that overproduces everything and things like that. But nonetheless, people are, uh, they're having less children. And I think a lot of that is kind of like the rat metaverse thing. I think a lot of people who, uh, there are a lot of people who are not as focused as on continuity and family and things like that. They're more focused on, uh, is this convenient for me? I'm, I'm just going to keep eating, con- eating and consuming and things like that, right? 
So anyway, I think that's about uh, it's about time for a break because I want to go ahead and start talking about the other books, and I, I want to do the break before that because it evenly divides everything. So I will read a couple of comments, and then we'll get back into, again, Paul Ehrlich's Population Bomb and Julian Simon's response, The Resourceful Earth. All right, time to read some comments. So I will go ahead and say the last episode of Not Related. Oh, you know, I didn't even say this is not related, but this is. Notrelated.xyz if you're watching this on YouTube or something. Go there. Download the previous episodes, get on the RSS feed, get a RSS feed reader, get antenna pod or something, and download the episodes. Either way, um, so the last episode on BS Jobs was, on YouTube at least, by far the most popular episode. Usually when I put them out on YouTube, I don't expect them to get any number of views because it's just the still image. And, uh, you know, most people just download the file anyway. But for whatever reason, I think that video on jobs uh, having no meaning and things like that uh, really struck a chord with people, really resonated with a lot. And uh, just, I, I think it got over 100,000 views just in the past week or so. So it was very popular. But weirdly enough, I got very few uh, comments via donation and things like that. Now, lots of people posted, you can go look for yourself, posted comments on the YouTube video talking about their own BS job experience. But not as many comments this time, but I, or donation comments, but I'll, I'll read them out either way because uh, I can't help, you know, I can't be helped to read all of those hundreds of comments on the YouTube video. Uh, so, Quisquillii sends in $5. Thanks for the content, Luke. Um, uh, Bragadin sends in some XMR. Greetings from Venetia. Ever heard of Maria Treben? She was a based Christian Austrian, Austrian herbalist. Her book, Health Through God's Pharmacy, is easily the first step towards the homeopathy pill. Uh, I don't know anything about her, um, uh, but uh, maybe I'll look into her. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, Raphael donates $10 a month. Yo, Luke, really enjoy your content. Sorry, this email's all purposefully misspelled. Really enjoy your content. Sorry, I can't donate much. I feel like I don't really care if God exists or he doesn't. And I will try to live as independently from a God as possible. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, my thoughts are it doesn't make any sense. I don't know. If God exists, you cannot live independently from him. That That is like, doesn't, anyway. Uh, so $20 from Renee. Renee says, hey, Luke, I enjoy your YouTube channel so, uh, so much that I can't watch myself in the mirror anymore without donating. So here I go. That said, just over a year ago, I wrote an open source tool in Bash which I believe is the safest way to store your private data in untrusted cloud environments. Since I'm better at coding than self-promotion, this tool uh, has been lingering in complete obscurity since. I think it deserves more recognition. You can give it a try. Uh, it's called Naon, N-A-E-O-N. Uh, it has a SourceForge link here, N-A-E-O-N. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm inherently skeptical on any attempt to, I mean, of course you can encrypt things, right, with your GPT key or something else. Uh, and store them in the cloud, but uh, like, why would you even do that? Why why would you store it in the cloud? Store it on a server that you control, or put it on a USB drive. I well, I'm sure there's some use of that, but you know, whatever. Uh, I I'm just inherently skeptical of those kind of things. Uh, anonymous sends in some XMR. Should I even keep trying to find a wife when I have an asymmetric face? <laughs> what? <laughs> an asymmetric face and other bad proportions, or is it best? My best bet to accepting it and keeping out of the gene pool. Okay, that's a stupid comment. Like, what? <laughs> uh, he probably intended me for me the, to read that on a, a live stream and roast him for it, but um, I guess I missed it during the last 
uh, live stream. Uh, let's see what else. Tyler sends in five bucks. No comment on that. Thank you, Tyler. And uh, it looks like that's about it. Uh, yeah, those are all the donations. Um, only a couple, even though we did our biggest episode yet. So uh, um, either way, let's, uh, let's get on to the business. In the 60s, the 1960s, that is, there was a kind of rebirth of Malthusianism. And it wasn't by, well, here's the thing. Here's the, you guys know how the 20th century is. It is literally the Reddit of centuries because it is just people who don't know anything about anything <laughs> pretending to be really smart and patting themselves on the back for noticing things that people talk, have been talking about for centuries. But they don't know about that because they don't freaking read anything. Um, it, it, so the 20th century was marked by many people like this. And one of them was Paul Ehrlich, who wrote in the 1960s a book called The Population Bomb. Now, um, my cynical way of describing... This is a very short book. I mean, it's much longer than uh, Malthus's essay on population. Um, but my my cynical way of describing this book is it is like a dumbed-down, anecdotally-based Malthusianism that doesn't even give credence to Malthus, who, you know, anyone who who was generally aware in the cultural environment at the time and still now knows about, you know, Thomas Malthus. He's a very important guy. Um, but uh, Paul Ehrlich writes this book called The Population Bomb, uh, which is, you know, of course, Malthus put forth a kind of argument as to why population growth has to be an issue. Um, Ehrlich is more like, well, in, in the opening of the book, he says, well, you know, if we just keep increasing the population at the same ex exponential growth curve, we're going to have like, you know, 600 million trillion people on the planet and we're going to have to have uh, a condo over the entire earth that's like 2,000 stories wide, blah, 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 all that, all that kind of earth stories high, uh, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's exactly what I was talking about before where it's just like people extrapolating things and not, uh, I don't know, they, they don't have a view of marginalism, right? <laughs> So it was kind of a silly book, but the thing about Ehrlich is, is he you can look up videos of him if you really want. He's kind of charismatic. He's one of those guys. Um, he got a, a significant following like in, in kind of green movements in the 1960s. And although I've never seen Bill Gates and those kind of people directly mention him, I, I think it's doubtless that because Ehrlich was one of these people who, who reinvigorated these ideas or really rediscovered the same ideas without knowing that, I, I guess, there was this history behind them. Um, you know, they have probably influenced a lot of people like Gates and, and others. But Ehrlich was very famous. He went on a bunch of talk shows. He wrote for a bunch of, uh, he would write a bunch of articles for newspapers and stuff like that. And he was very widely covered. Uh, and the, also, the other thing about Ehrlich is he's, he was a little freaking nuts. Now, he's still alive today. Uh, and he has 100% toned down everything he said. Because like Malthus, Ehrlich, uh, well, Malthus made kind of one bad prediction. He just kind of generalized from one theory and, okay, there was this technological variable and we couldn't account for that. But Ehrlich made a panoply of very specific and very crazy predictions. You know, the kind of stuff like, oh, the earth, the world is going to collapse by 1985 or something like that, or then 2000 and stuff like that. And not just that, but he, I don't, I don't want to describe his followers as kind of cult-like. And they, they weren't all following him. This is part of a wider, you know, it's the 1960s. Everyone was freaking insane back then. But um, there were a lot of people who endorsed very heinous things 
to control population and, and this kind of this green revolutionary stuff. Um, Ehrlich actually, even in the New York Times, uh, they actually published this article uh, on Ehrlich giving a speech. He said, a sterility drug in food is hinted. Biologists stresses the need to curb population growth. So I'll, I'll just read out the first couple sentences. The possibility that the government might have to put a sterility drug in reservoirs and food shipped to foreign countries to limit human multiplication was envisioned today by a leading crusader on the population problem. The crusader, Dr. Paul Ehrlich of Stanford University, among a number of commentators who have called attention to the population crisis at the United States Commission for uh, UNESCO, opened uh, it on the 13th National Conference here today. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and Ehrlich was actually pretty influential. Actually, it goes down in uh, this article to talk about, um, you know, he, he at least that this event was with one of Nixon's uh, uh, advi his scientific advisors, who was also really kind of anti-population growth and things like this. Now, the consummation of all of this, right, in, during this period was the idea of antinatalism, okay? Now, does, Ehrlich himself is not necessarily antinatalist, um, but it's it's a much more religious view. Antinatalism is really just the idea that people should not ever have children, okay, or basically. And that comes from two different camps. One is the ecological camp, the, the kind of camp that Ehrlich would be in where uh, human population is just getting too big. We have too many people. We can't support them. Therefore, it's a bad thing to have children, okay? So that, that is camp number one. And camp number two of antinatalism, which often comes with the first, but camp number two is more like human existence itself is suffering or evil or it's killing the planet. Therefore, no one should have children, right? So this is antinatalism. Again, I'm not I'm not telling uh, you Ehrlich believed this because I, I don't. Well, actually, I don't know. You might be able to find some writing of his that says exactly this. But um, although he was quoted, <laughs> he was quoted as saying something like, um, "Actually, I wrote it down." Um, the mother of the year should be a sterilized woman with two adopted children. That that is Ehrlich. Although I looked up the origin of that quote, it's it's often quoted and included in memes. I've never actually found the origin of that. So. Take that with a grain of salt. Either way, uh, you read Population Bomb, and it actually talks about the idea of sterilization quite frequently. And I think I alluded in the original, uh, or in the, the first half of this show, that um, Ehrlich actually talks a lot about sterilization and forced sterilization, specifically in India at the period. India has always had, and I think they still have now, uh, a lot of flirtation with the idea of sterilization, and they've actually sterilized lots of people in India, uh, sometimes without necessarily full consent, like uh, uh, without people having a full understanding of what they're doing, right? Um, so Ehrlich was a big endorser of the, this kind of stuff, which I, I think even now, even in today's population growth hysteria, I would feel like Bill Gates would not even say it's good to be sterilized, but I don't, I don't know. I, I, you never know now. He is telling people to like re-engineer their poop and eat it. So I, you know, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but either way, the interesting thing about Ehrlich is actually um, not necessarily his views. They obviously passed um, as the decades went on and nothing continued to happen. And of course, standards of living increased and starvation decreased. And all of these many predictions came to fail. Uh, of Ehrlich, he kind of lost the public um, eye. And so people don't necessarily care that much about uh, what he's saying or doing. 
Um, although, as I said, he still is alive. He's pretty old now, but he still is alive. And of course, in typical fashion, he is convinced that the reason that the world has not ended is because he has saved it by raising awareness about population growth. Even though actually a lot of his population growth predictions are lower than what they actually are in real life. So like in the United States, uh, I think he says something like, oh my goodness, the US population is gonna get to like 250 million. That's gonna be way too much. And now we're like at maybe 350 million. And I, I don't know. I don't feel cramped. Maybe someone does, but <laughs> we're not as, well, I guess food prices have gone up, but I don't know if that's because of uh, population growth, to be honest. But either way, one of the, um, final events of Ehrlich's public career is a bet he took with a man. Uh, a bet he took with a man named Julian Simon, okay? Now, Julian Simon is kind of like the anti-Paul Ehrlich. And uh, while Paul Ehrlich was definitely uh, a victim of many, I don't want to say absurdities, but maybe exaggeration, Julian Simon may actually be a victim of exaggeration in the opposite direction, but uh, I, I think his works are worth looking at. Julian Simon wrote uh, many responses to Paul Ehrlich's writing and the idea, the, the zero population growth people in general. And a lot of them, uh, now Julian Simon, he was, he was he's kind of like a, an economist. I, I want to say he's like a libertarian kind of guy. Um, that's the view I get from the way he talked. Uh, I want to say he was like affiliated with Cato or, or one of those kind of libertarian. I don't know. Was Cato around back then? I, I just feel like there was some libertarian think tank he was associated with. Um, either way, Simons had written this book called The Resourceful Earth. And he also wanted to put Ehrlich's predictions to, the, to a task. So he sat down with Ehrlich and said, you pick whatever commodities you want. And I am going to bet that all of these commodities are going to be more available, more cheap, more plentiful in, you know, 10 or 20, something like that years. Okay. So they took that bet and Simon, of course, won. Okay. Because although, you know, although Ehrlich had this idea of scarcity and, and overpopulation and all this kind of stuff, in real life, again, we have massive productivity. We have a massive increase in productivity in ways that people in the past couldn't necessarily understand. And most of, of all, not everything is constantly falling in price. The things that they had bet on and things generally in the economy fell uh, in price and Simon won this. But that's kind of boring and dry. Um, what is important is the way that Simon looked at his actual critique of Malthusianism and Ehrlichism, if you want to call it that. Julian Simon wrote a book not just called The Resourceful Earth, but also a book called The Ultimate Resource. Now, what is the ultimate resource? The ultimate resource, in Simon's view, is humans. <laughs> humans are actually the ultimate resource. And he, sa he said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that um, the, if you want to solve the world's population problems, the best thing you could do is create more humans so you have more people who can figure out how to solve the problem, which <laughs> kind of sounds obviously absurd. But Simon's view is that... Well, let's let's look back to why Malthus failed. Malthus failed in making his prediction because he failed to look at a particular variable. That is technological change. Now, I, I've just been saying technological change as if it's just one thing. But in reality, there are a bajillion different developments that are happening all the time. Ways of doing things more effectively and getting more out of crops and land and things like that. They're happening all the time that are being incrementally discovered. 
And population is not just the pressure to further incentivize people to develop new things to solve these kind of problems, but it's also more people working on the problems, right? Now, Simon actually has a view not dissimilar to Schumpeter. Uh, I, I want to say back in the, the second episode of Not Related, we talked about Schumpeter. I don't know if I, I mentioned this of him, but Schumpeter uh, kind of responded to the idea that, oh, the mar like capitalism is going to run out of stuff to do like we're not going to be able to develop more stuff you know we're not going to be able to have more technical uh developments and things like that and the thing when you're talking about something like that it's it's kind of we always have this we don't have hindsight right by definition we cannot see the new developments that are going to occur in the future whereas we can always look at the past and see all that stuff and say oh well it's obvious right and um, the thing that Schumpeter notes in, in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy is that it's not, the market economy, it's not really about just productivity or squeezing more productivity about things. It's also about taking things that are not considered natural resources and turning them into natural resources, right? Or turning them into things that can be used for something. This is something that Simon talks about as well. Right. So uh, the, the classic example would be that nasty, gooey liquid that comes out of the ground, the black stuff, the oil. Right. So oil by itself is pretty freaking useless and kind of nasty if you ever uncover it. But of course, it has become kind of the, the basis of a lot of our modern society, using it, harnessing it for power. So one of the most important things. It's something that started out as not a resource, just some kind of weird thing that was in the ground, and we found out how to harness it, right? And similar things, uh, we're not really using nuclear power that much, but, you know, it's a similar concept. There are a lot of things that are just sitting right in front of us that we we don't know how to exploit or we haven't been able to exploit them, but we definitely can. So. Whenever you're going to do the thing that Malthus did and create this model of how population can increase and what its limits are, you always have to remember that there are a million black swans. I mean, you could say white swans, right, because they're good things. But there are, there are many new potentialities that will, be, uh, that will be revealed in the future as we have more development, right? So at any point in time, you can always look at the future and just extrapolate trends and they will look freaking ridiculous. That is not, that, that's not a very exciting thing to do. That's not a very, I don't know, it's not eventful. It's not really telling you anything because you're just stating the obvious, right? Um, so Simon's view is that um, humans are themselves a resource and having these population issues is actually good for technical development and there are always more ways of making things efficiently or just kind of fine-tuning things or using new things that are not natural resource or that are not thought of as being resources they're just being out there and repurposing them and getting things out of that so um simon uh simon's is is i will say he is almost uh um I don't know, maybe a little too optimistic, I'll say that, because he actually did say something like, oh, well, you know, the earth, it can continue to, we can have the same population growth rate for like a billion years or something like that. And that at that point, we literally are getting to the point where we have more humans and uh, then there are atoms in the universe. Like there are still going to be some kinds of limits. Um, but I think Simon's view is a lot more robust. Now, this isn't, now, mind you, I will say this. This is not to say that... Um, 
uh, we might go some significant periods without enough technological development development to keep up with population or other constraints, other environmental constraints or things like that. But in general, I think Simon's idea is that um, you know, as time goes on, we can't necessarily extrapolate the trends that we are familiar with. They're always going to be more pessimistic than the than we might otherwise expect, right? Now, to come back full circle, is population growth an issue? Is it something we have to be worried about? Is Bill Gates wasting his time? Uh, well, actually, I, even if population growth or overpopulation is not an issue. Bill Gates is probably not wasting his time because he can still probably use the issue of population growth cynically to his own advantage, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I do think by itself population growth is probably not a very important issue. In fact, if anything, um, the issue of underpopulation is going to become something you hear talked about a whole lot more. This is my editorial stance and it is something that I think will Probably I'm not, I'm not going to extrapolate trends because I just talked about how stupid it is to extrapolate trends. But I think there's something very worrisome about a lot of developed countries that I've already alluded to. Um, the fact that people are no longer functioning as humans anymore. They're not getting married and having children and they're just kind of Netflixing and cooming and things like that. I view that as fundamentally worrisome, that that has been uh, something that's normalized, that we are basically living like the rats. We are living like the rats in, um, you know, the, the experiment where they have everything they want, uh, John Calhoun's uh, experiment, where they have everything they need and therefore they stop reproducing, they stop, ex they basically die out because, uh, because, well, actually in Calhoun's terminology, um, there's this thing called a population sink, which maybe you've heard of if you know about demography, but historically, because cities were such nasty places and people, there was so much disease and things like that, they were termed population sinks because people would be born in the country and you'd have a lot of people born in the country and they moved to cities and they basically die. That's a population sink. But Calhoun uh, created the idea of a behavioral sink. And that is what the rat utopia is. It's a place where you have everything you want and existence is not really about existing anymore. It's, a, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of, I'm here. Uh, I don't really care about having children. I don't exist for a reason. That's it. And I am just going to let myself die. And in fact, I have this very clever uh, overpopulation hysteria in the back of my mind that actually justify, I'm actually a noble person for not having children. Ah, yes. This is what people, a lot of antinatalists and stuff uh, in modern countries are thinking about. And it, I think it's kind of a rationalization. I think if anything, people are pulled out of their natural uh, human situations and they are no longer functioning as humans Kind of should do. So I find that more worrisome than really even overpopulation or even underpopulation is the mere fact that what has happened in industrial societies is inherently worrisome. Uh, and we don't really know what direction it's going to go. Um, I, I honestly cannot predict, and I think anyone who tries to predict it are, is just kind of fooling themselves. So I actually wrote down, there are a couple of really funny headlines where people are writing about stuff like this. Um, specifically, of like Japan gets a lot of bad press about this. You know, here, here's a headline I'll read. Half of Japanese couples are in sexless marriages. 
More than 22% of women said they found sex troublesome, while 35.2% of men said that work left them too tired for intercourse, right? So and that's the kind of stuff that ha that happens. And even you look at the United States, and it's actually no different. I don't know if, you know, Americans will talk like that, you know, they'll post their L's like that, like Japanese people will. But um, if you look at, let's say, you know, this is not me giving endorsement to fornication, but it can be a proxy for sexual behaviors in general. Um, you know, which generation is the most sexed? Like, who, who had the most sex? Well, it was the boomers, right? Boomers had lots of sex. And again, this is not me endorsing fornication. But over the years, even though we live in an increasingly sexualized society where Zoomers right now, they can watch porn all they want. They can pick up TikTok and, you know, see unspeakable things on that. Um, you know, they are the most sexualized generation. But in terms of them actually having sexual contact and sexual behavior with other people, they're, they're like the lowest in a very, very long time, right? Things are keep getting weird and weird. It's not even that we are moving to, a, although we are very sexualized, we're not even sexual. It's just kind of pseudo sex. It's like people who are just, uh, they're like the rats who are just like phoning it in. Um, actually, Calhoun goes into rat behaviors where like men would guard uh, women, but they wouldn't actually have intercourse like mice uh, would ga guard the female mice, but they wouldn't actually uh, have intercourse with them. Weird things like that. Right. Basically, mouse simps. Really strange. Um, either way, those are the things I think we really have to worry about in uh, post-developed societies, uh, kind of population collapse and ending up like the rats. So, so that is what that is what my concern is. Um, but that is not to say that there are not some issues with uh, population increases in in some places. Now, I don't endorse any kind of sterilization or anything like that. I think it is 100% uh, the right of people to engage in the marital act and have children. And I find it suspect if anyone questions uh, that right. However, um, I do think that there are many issues that can arise from increased populations and things like that, but those are drastically outstretched as far as I can see by the increase to industrial technology and the productivity of it. So anyway, so I guess I'm wrapping up uh, this episode of Not Related. Again, go to notrelated.xyz, uh, donate.notrelated.xyz to leave a donation and comment. Um, you can donate Bitcoin and Monero. Uh, I will be back. I, I'll probably do some episodes next month. I think I have two I have in mind. We, we will see if I will have time. I'm only barely getting this one in at the end of the month, but I wanted to wanted to do that. And, oh, and by the way, if you make a pledge, the reason I'm doing it at the end of the month, uh, as the policy is, if you sign up for a monthly donation, you will only be charged if I do two episodes per month. So if I take a month off, which I sometimes do, you will not be giving me money to do nothing because that, that ain't fair. It's not fair for anyone. Either way, have any comments, email them uh, or send a donation, and I will see you guys next time.